Welcome to the Love Life Podcast, episode number 16, Basic Psychology Terms Everyone Should Know. It's December 27, 2020. I'm your host, Lisa Lundy, author, blogger, YouTuber, motivational speaker, and podcaster. What I do is I help people be well-loved, happy, and healthy, even when life is very hard. As my disclaimer, this podcast does not constitute medical or therapy advice in any way, and my music is by Howie Moskovich. Basic psychology terms everyone should know. I'm a fan of psychology, starting back in my college days when I took Psych 101, which I loved. I actually held on to my psychology textbook for way too long, probably. And one of the terms that really captivated me from Psych 101 was this concept called the self-fulfilling prophecy, which we're going to cover under the basic terms. But some of the experiments and outcomes of experiments in psychology that explain human behavior is just utterly fascinating. Now, I'm not covering this podcast because I think it's fascinating. I'm covering this material because I believe, and I'm going to cover with you, it's extremely helpful and it will go a long way to make your life easier. And I'm a fan of easy. I don't like to do things the hard way. I'd like to do life easier, easier, funner, better, with more love. So here's what we're going to cover in this podcast. I'm going to talk to you about how basic psychology can help you in life, and then I'm going to cover the psychology terms I've called through and found what I think are the most significant or useful to you, some takeaways and a call to action. So before I dive in, I I like to give a shameless plug for my website where I'm having a Year of Freedom giveaway with lots of cool prizes. And later in January 2021, I'll be adding my new book to the prizes that are given away. The giveaway, by the way, runs through July 2021, so there's lots of time to still win prizes. Next, I want to give you a disclaimer. I am not a medical professional or therapist in any way, shape, or form, so none of my material constitutes medical or therapy advice. If you happen to be someone who is suicidal or thinking about harming yourself or killing yourself, I am making a personal plea from me to you to please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. I am begging you to talk to someone, to, to ask for help, to make a call. I don't care if you put it on social media. I mean, one time I got a Snapchat from a guy who I barely know, actually really didn't know, although he had my Snapchat asking like at 11 or 11:30 at night for someone to meet him that he really needed to talk to someone and so I answered the call of course he was a little disappointed that it was me because he didn't know me but it turned out all right we spent two hours talking got him turned around so I'm telling you I don't care how you do it I'm asking you to ask for help and let people help you because people will help you All right, how can basic psychology help you? 
Well, I have a list uh, based on the research of what we know. And so I'm just going to run through it. And what I'm asking you while I'm going through this list is to listen from the standpoint, would any of these benefits be good for you? Would you like to have any of these benefits? And if so, well, then you might want to pay attention or you might want to listen to the podcast more than once. Okay. So number one, it can help prevent you from making a serious mistake in life. So a little bit of psychology knowledge and understanding can help prevent you from making a serious mistake in life. It can help increase your self-confidence. It can help you with self-motivation. Now, right now, during a pandemic, lots of people are lacking motivation. I just did a podcast about getting motivated when times are hard, but a little psychology can also help you with self-motivation. It can help you improve your relationships. It can help improve your communication and emotional intelligence skills. Well, I'm a fan of emotional intelligence. That would be podcast number two, Emotions as Your Superpower. It can make life easier. It can reduce stress. It can help you make sense of the world and people in your life. It can help you make sense of unhealthy behaviors of other people and or the mental illnesses or mental problems of other people. It can help you be happier. It can help you be healthier psychologically or mentally. It can help you um, help other people. So when you have knowledge, you can help other people make sense of the world or whatever going on. It can help you break the cycle of dysfunctional families and relationships, which is extremely significant. I'm covering dysfunctional families and toxic relationships in an upcoming podcast. It can actually save you money. It can help reduce depression and anxiety. It can help you with conflict and conflict resolution. It can boost your social life. It can definitely help you improve your analytical and reasoning skills, think critical thinking skills. It can help you make better decisions and it can help improve your leadership skills. I don't know about you, but I think that's a pretty good list of benefits for just learning and applying a few things. So let's dive into some basic psychology concepts that I personally believe everyone should know and understand, or I wouldn't be doing a podcast on it. So number one is the self-fulfilling prophecy. I'm a huge fan of this. And by the way, so the definitions I'm going to be giving you are straight from the research not my adulterated version of of it, although I will be making a few comments as a sidebar. So the definition of the self-fulfilling prophecy is it's a prediction that causes itself to be true due to the behavior, parentheses, including the act of predicting it, of the believer. Self-fulfilling here means brought about as a result of being foretold or talked about Well, prophecy refers to the prediction. So that's the scientific definition of the self-fulfilling prophecy. So what does that actually look like or mean? What, What it looks like in real life is you predict that you're going to get a great job and you believe that you're going to get a great job or a boyfriend, girlfriend, or, you know, whatever, something, you know, you, you believe and predict that you that some good outcome or something good is going to happen. Then what happens is 
your behaviors line up to that belief. So your actions are then consistent with what you believe is going to happen. So if you believed you were going to get this really phenomenal job, you would be talking to people, you would be, you know, applying, you would be taking actions that then actually cause what you believed was going to happen to actually happen. Now, what's very important about the self-fulfilling prophecy, besides it's pretty cool, I mean, I think it's pretty cool, like, hmm, you can predict a future outcome for your life and then have it come true, yeah, that's cool, but the important thing about the self-fulfilling prophecy, so it, it operates whether you like it or not, that's just what we know about human behavior for decades and decades, but there's an opposite or a corollary to the self-fulfilling prophecy, which is called the self-defeating prophecy. And it's important that you understand that you're using one or the other. Now, the self-defeating prophecy, just like the name implies, self-defeating is when you believe something bad or negative is going to happen and your actions actually contribute to that. So you're either operating in life under the self-fulfilling prophecy, that would be operating on the positive, operating that good things are going to happen, or you're operating on the self-defeating prophecy. But if you didn't know about the self-fulfilling prophecy and its corollary, the self-defeating prophecy, you would just be kind of doing life. So it is extremely powerful because you want to operate on the self-fulfilling prophecy. You want to operate on the positive, not shooting yourself in the foot with the self-defeating prophecy. The next term is called projecting. And I'm going to give you, here's the definition of projecting or projection from the research. Projection is the process of displacing one's own feelings onto a different person animal or object. The term is most commonly used to describe defensive projection, meaning attributing one's own unacceptable urges to another. For example, this is from the research, if someone continuously bullies and ridicules a peer about his insecurities, the bully might be projecting his own struggle with self-esteem onto another person. So that's the definition of projecting, and it's, in my opinion, extremely common. And in my opinion, it is wildly helpful to know this concept and understand it because you can actually then see it and identify it in real life, which is wildly helpful. So what that might look like, well, first, first of all, let me backtrack and say, Having self-awareness, understanding yourself, and having, you know, abilities or facility with your emotions is, is kind of a prerequisite to being able to use, probably, or identify projecting in your own life. So if you get good with your emotions, like my second podcast, Emotions as a Superpower, then it will be easier for you to identify when someone's projecting, and that might look like you know, someone says to you, oh, well, you're just really angry when you happen to know because you know yourself and you know your emotions and you know what you're thinking and you're using logical and rational thinking, not emotional reasoning, that you're not angry. That might be someone projecting that they're actually anger, angry. So it's really when people have emotions or beliefs or 
thoughts or what have you that they can't accept or you know wrap their minds around so they it's you know they use it's a it's an unconscious defense mechanism they actually put their emotions onto you or to someone else so that's projection or projecting denial the definition of denial is uh, it's a defense mechanism proposed by Sigmund Freud's daughter, Anna Freud, which involves a refusal to accept reality, thus blocking external events from awareness. If a situation is too much to handle, the person may respond by refusing to perceive it or by denying that it exists. Now, denial is also very common, and sometimes when there's a trauma or a death or an accident or some other situation, uh, denial can be a little helpful because you kind of ha have to give yourself time to to begin to process what happened or the emotions or the circumstances. But in the long term, denial is not helpful and not healthy. So it can be a little helpful in certain situations, but overall in general, you don't want to live your life in denial. And it's helpful to understand because you might find yourself in denial now and then, like myself. I don't, I don't do denial a lot, but I have, I have no, been known to occasionally slip in denial, into denial. But it's helpful because it's just one of those things that, you know, you may be trying to help, you know, someone that you love, and they're in denial. Well, they're, they're, you know, they need to get out of denial because they're not going to be able to be helped if they're denying reality. The next concept is called emotional intelligence, and emotional intelligence is often abbreviated as either EI for emotional intelligence or EQ for emotional quotient, and emotional intelligence and emotional quotient are two terms that are synonymous and interchangeable. So here's the definition according to the research. Emotional intelligence is the capacity to be aware of, control, and express one's emotions and to handle interpersonal relationships judiciously and empathetically. So this is my sidebar comment. This is huge. It is so huge. It is so important. It is my second podcast, Emotions as a Superpower. The issue is we don't grow up in a world or society where we're trained how to identify, manage, and process our emotions. It's a skill we don't learn growing up. Now, if you happen to learn it because of different circumstances, then you're one of a smaller percentage of the population in the world that knows how to do that, but most people don't. So, Either you learn emotional intelligence, that means identifying, managing, processing, and, you know, controlling your emotions, or you are at the whim of your emotions. I assert, you don't want to be at the whim of your emotions. You want to be able to manage, control, identify, and, and deal with them. All right, the next uh, concept is is the conscious mind versus the unconscious and subconscious mind. So imagine your mind is one entity and we're going to break it down into three parts of your mind. So according to the research, the conscious mind contains all of the thoughts, memories, feelings, and wishes of which we are aware of at any given moment. This is the aspect of mental processing that we can think and talk about rationally. 
This also includes our memory, which is not always part of the conscious mind, but can be retrieved and brought back into our awareness. So that's the conscious mind. The definition of the unconscious mind is a reservoir of feelings, thoughts, urges, and memories that are outside of our conscious awareness. Most of the contents of the unconscious mind are unacceptable or unpleasant, such as feelings of pain, anxiety, or conflict. And the last piece of this is the unconscious. No, 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 sorry, I missed that. So the unconscious mind, to finish, finish up, comprises mental processes that are inaccessible to the conscious mind, but, but happens to influence judgments, feelings, or behaviors. So here's the thing about, uh, and the subconscious mind is just another piece of, of the unconscious mind. So if we look at the total mind, uh, and according to Freud, from 1915, the unconscious mind is the primary source of human behavior. So let me read that again. According to Freud, the unconscious mind is the primary source of human behavior. So if we break it down, according to the research, about 10% of your mind is conscious. It's what you're conscious of. And about 90% is either the unconscious or subconscious mind. However, as Freud indicated, all of the research that I've seen and looked at seems very consistent that it is your subconscious and unconscious mind that runs your life. So what does that mean? Well, it might mean that in your unconscious and sub or subconscious mind, you might have disempowering attitudes or beliefs that you're simply not aware of because they're not in your conscious mind. They're not in the part you're, you're awake and aware to. So I'm going to give an example quickly. So in 2005, I was doing some, some work in growth and development, which of course I love because it's like all of my stuff is about growth and development. And one of the things I realized in doing some sidebar work to kind of access what is in my subconscious and unconscious mind, and I'll probably eventually do a podcast about this because it's really, it's quite amazing and, and a way to like, reprogram your unconscious and subconscious mind, which you can do. But one of the things I realized in 2005, much to my surprise or shock, was that in my subconscious mind, I had this belief or statement or attitude that I was afraid to be really, really successful. Once I realized that was in there, and oh, it was definitely in there, then everything kind of made sense because I could look back and see these different events where it's like when I'm number in the number one position for sales while everyone's trying to unseat me and, you know, I'm not, I just don't like, I'm not a competitive person with other people. I mean, I compete with myself, but I didn't like that. So I'd kind of let people know so they could beat me. So I'd come in at number two and, and not be the target. There were just all these pieces that made sense. And I, and I could recognize, well, that's kind of ridiculous. Like, that's a ridiculous thing to be afraid of being really successful. And then I could, could alter that. So for other people or, or, you know, in general, that might be in your subconscious, unconscious mind might be you're afraid to let love in. 
because of experiences or decisions that you're not aware of, or you might have concerns about other people in life in general, all undistinguished in your subconscious or unconscious mind, but yet controlling your life. So it's extremely powerful to understand, you know, how your mind works if you want to have a happy and healthy life and be well loved. Next term is called emotional reasoning. And I really, really want everybody to start understanding this because it is exceptionally powerful. So according to the research, the term emotional reasoning is meant to describe a particular type of cognitive distortion, which was first employed in the 1970s by Aaron Beck, the founder of cognitive therapy, which was later expanded to be cognitive behavioral or behavior therapy or CBT. So according to Aaron Beck, whenever someone concludes that their emotional reaction to something thereby defines its reality, they're engaging in emotional reasoning. Any observed evidence is disregarded or dismissed in favor of the presumed truth of their feelings. Additionally, Beck believed that such reasoning originated from negative thoughts best appreciated as involuntary, uncontrollable, or automatic. So that's the definition of emotional reasoning. So for example... If you're feeling overwhelmed by something, such someone who does emotional reasoning, such a feeling proves that the present circumstances are too much for you to handle. And this explains one key aspect of procrastination, as in if you feel you'll fail at something, you'll probably put it off and not even attempt it. Now, the way to really uh, use emotional reasoning to your advantage is to understand that you want to use rational, logical thinking and facts to reason. People who use emotional reasoning aren't using facts, they're using their emotions. And when you say to someone who does emotional reasoning, well, that's not a fact, that's your feelings, or that's your opinion, or that's your, you know, thoughts, but that's not a fact, they can't really have an intelligent or articulate conversation about that because they're not rational. They're using it's emotional reasoning is a cognitive distortion, and it's helpful because you want to have you know great conversations with people, but sometimes you're kind of like what 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 is up? They're, they're like you know they can't have a conversation with you. So that's important in my opinion. Next up is something called minimizers, and the dictionary definition of minimi minimizers is to reduce or minimize, to, redu to reduce the smallest possible amount, extent, size, or degree, or to represent as having the least degree of importance, value, or size. So minimizing or minimizers take an event, a phrase, a statement, or an action of any size and make them smaller, less, like make it less of an issue and uh, projects the issue onto the other individual or inanimate object object or situation it's really basically a side step away from denial according to the research so what does that mean well minimizers when they're faced with a problem 
tend to do what? Well, they tend to minimize the problem. They tend to make it smaller or less important. So if they're having a financial problem, a minimizer won't deal with it. What are they going to do? And they're going to like make like, oh no, it doesn't really matter. And so they, they start to lose their good credit score or they, they you know, they're not taking actions consistent with recognizing the significance of the problem. Now, where this is helpful for you, assuming you're not a minimizer, I mean, if you're a minimizer, look, you just want to own it, claim it, and deal with it. But if you're not a minimizer, sometimes you'll bump heads with someone who is a minimizer because you want to solve a problem and take action, and they're minimizing it, saying, well, we really don't have a problem. So it's really helpful in life to understand that some people are minimizers, and they're going to have a different approach because they're not really acknowledging that there's really a problem. Next is to monsterize. Now this is not commonly used, but it's really an important phrase that I learned many years ago, which to monsterize someone or to monsterize an organization or something is to make something or someone into a monster, to give someone a bad reputation, to demonize or to vilify. So for clues to whether you or someone else is monsterizing, uh, what I had learned some years ago was the use of the word always or never is a clue that you or someone else might be monsterizing someone or something else. So for example, you this phrase, you never do X, Y, or Z. So there's the use of never, or you always blame me, or you never do blah, 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 or you never this, or you always that. The use of never or always are a clue. Because the reality is, it's probably not the case that someone always blames you or never does this or that. So you want to you definitely don't want to monsterize people. It's just not a good thing. And it's helpful to understand if someone's monsterizing you. All right, next term is called misplacing or displacing anger. I call it the kick the dog situation. And this is what the research says about that term. Displacement is a defense mechanism, a coping strategy that entails a disavowal of thoughts, feelings, or impulses that we view as being inconsistent with or unacceptable to our sense of self. Specifically, displacement involves directing these intensely uncomfortable experiences toward a less threatening target than the original triggering target. Displaced anger and aggression may reflect, according to the research, the most destructive forms of displacement as it often causes a ripple effect of negative energy. So so let's talk about this for a second because I really want you to understand. So people who have low emotional skills, that would include typically they're not good with anger, they're going to get angry and then because they don't have anger skills, they're basically, it's going to be like who kicked the dog? And they're going to take their anger out on you or someone else or something else because they're not able to just be say, well, I'm just really angry at my boss or I'm just really angry with you because you did this or that. Like they just can't own it and claim it and manage and process it. So it just goes off on other people like who kicked the dog. So that could be 
Well, I have found that to be very helpful in life. All right, next phrase or term is narcissist or narcissist behaviors, narcissistic behaviors. So I think really, you know, narcissist, sociopath, psychopath, I think we should just have this be common understanding for everyone. So the nar according to the research, narcissist personality disorder is one of several types of personality disorders. It is a mental condition in which people have an inflated sense of their own importance, a deep need for excessive attention and admiration, troubled relationships, and is hallmarked by a lack of empathy for others. So children who are raised by a narcissistic parent frequently end up very wounded and have lots of issues. I mean, narcissistic behaviors are very common in the world and very troublesome in the impact they have. And you having an understanding of what a narcissist is, not that me going over this briefly is going to give you this whole flavor. I could probably do a whole podcast about that. But at least understanding that there are personality disorders that you know, you might be dealing with someone who has that. That's just extremely helpful and powerful, and it can be very free. So the next thing, one of my topics that I actually really do enjoy, I mean, I've, I found it fascinating, and it is clearly very helpful, which is to understand this concept called the psychopath checklist. And the psychopath checklist was developed by this Dr. Robert Hare, who's from Canada, uh, and, a, and a team of his peers originally and it came out as the psychopath checklist. But then as it, as it, you know, kind of evolved, it was later turned into the psychopath checklist revised, which is an essential protocol within forensic and correctional settings that has been used since the 19, since 1980. Later on, after sometime after 1980, they, uh, came up with a screening version. So that's the psychopath checklist screening version. But it has been, you know, repeatedly tested. It's been, you know, validated by, you know, all this, the ways that you uh, validate testing. And, and it's very helpful for assessing psychopathic traits. Now, according to the research, the questionnaire for the psychopath checklist revised or the screening version is really only to be used by specially trained, you know, people who have special, uh, you know, special training in forensic populations. However, I'm just going to add my little sidebar note that the psychopath checklist screening version is something that anybody could read because it's abbreviated. Questions are pretty clear. And I think it's very helpful for people to understand you know, what the behaviors are for someone who's a psychopath. That's just my opinion. All right. The next term is gaslighting. In the research, gaslighting is listed as a form of psychological manipulation in which a person or a group covertly sows seeds of doubt in a targeted individual or group, making them question their own memory, perception, or judgment. Gaslighting, in my opinion, is extremely common in the world. That's my opinion. So I'm going to give you an example because I want you to understand this because it happens all the time. So, for example, someone says, I don't want you to do X. I don't want you to do X. 
And I'm asking you, I'm telling you, I don't want you to do X. So they say it like three times very firmly. So you are very clear that they have asked you not to do X three times. Firmly, maybe even a little angrily, but it doesn't matter. Later, after you've had time to think about that they ask you not to do X very directly, uh, you realize, hmm, that's a little insulting, or that's really bad, or you, you realize something, and something negative. So you might then circle the wagons and come back and say, you know, that was pretty awful or bad that you asked me not to do X, because that, like, I would never do X or whatever. So you have a conversation, and their response is, well, I didn't really mean that. Well, I didn't actually say that or I had no intentions that you would actually do it, I was just making sure, or blah, blah, blah. You get the idea. They're really dismissing, demeaning, or dis diminishing being called out for what they actually did or said. And this is where it's really wildly helpful to have your emotions as a superpower, to be using logical, rational thinking, etc., because you can have these conversations with people and be clear like you know if someone said I'm asking you not to do x three times well it's pretty clear they don't want you to do x and they think you might have been going to do x or whatever so gaslighting happens and by the way gaslighting originated from this 19 I think it was 40s film where the man was turning down the gas the lights in the house were gas and he was turning them down and the wife was saying something like well you know the lights are dimming and he'd be like no no they're not you're just imagining it when he was actually turning down the gas so gaslighting is very important happens quite frequently the next thing is what I call false reality or a false real map of reality and we're and the psychological research causes cognitive distortion. So we're going to give you, I'm going to give you the definition of cognitive dif distortion. So cognitive distortions are simply ways that our mind convinces us of something that really isn't true. These inaccurate thoughts are usually used to reinforce negative thinking or emotions, telling ourselves that things sound rational and accurate, but really only serve to keep us feeling bad about ourselves. So there's many types of cognitive distortions. And what's important for you to understand is that some people operate with a false reality. Like their, their reality isn't accurate to what life really is. So I think that's very helpful. Next term is coping mechanisms or coping strategy. Now I have a whole podcast number 13 about, you know, dealing with life when it's hard and, and coping strategies or mechanisms. So I have a lot to say about that because I did a whole podcast on it. But we don't walk around teaching our children or being taught, well, here's the top 10 coping strategies for life. You should make sure you have some. So a coping mechanism are, are strategies that people often use in the face of trauma or stress to help manage painful or difficult emotions. And coping mechanisms can help people adjust to stressful events while helping them maintain their emotional well-being. So they're extremely important and sadly lacking. So that's coping mechanisms or strategies. Next is something that's also very common, which is passive-aggressive anger or passive-aggressive behaviors. So according to the research, passive-aggressive behavior 
is a pattern of indirectly expressing, expressing negative feelings instead of openly addressing them. There's a disconnection between what is passive what a passive aggressive person says and what he or she does. For example, a passive aggressive person might appear to agree, perhaps even enthusiastically, with another person's request. Rather than complying with the request, however, he or she might express anger or resentment by failing to follow through or missing deadlines. According to the research, some specific signs of passive-aggressive behavior include resentment and opposition to the demands of others, procrastination and intentional mistakes in response to others' demands, cynical, sullen, or hostile attitude, frequent complaints about being underappreciated or cheated, and I have added to the list hostile joking. There's actually a whole list of passive-aggressive behaviors that I included in my blog post on the healing nature of anger, and I'll probably ultimately do a podcast about the healing nature of anger and, and increasing your anger skills because, you know, anger, sadness, you know, there's some negative emotions we're not very good at and it's helpful it's helpful to understand and you know, to make sense of life when you're dealing with someone who has passive aggressive behavior or passive aggressive anger because you know it doesn't make sense they said they do it now they're being nasty you know it's really helpful next is something I included, which is assertiveness. And I have a whole podcast about assertiveness because I'm a fan. However, we live in a world where people don't necessarily operate on the assertiveness track. So assertiveness, according to the research, is a social skill that relies heavily on effective communication while simultaneously, this is important, simultaneously respecting the thoughts and wishes of others. People who are assertive clearly and respectfully communicate their wants, needs, positions, and boundaries to others. There's no question of where they stand, no matter what topic. Individuals who are high in assertiveness don't shy away from defending their points of views or goals or, or from trying to influence others to see their side. Here's the last point from the research, which is important. Assertive people are open to both compliments and constructive criticism. I am a huge fan of assertiveness. I think it should be taught in elementary school and, and everyone should have it in their toolbox for life. But there we have it for assertiveness. There's a whole podcast if you want to hear more about that. Next is a concept, a term called boundaries or lack of boundaries, which many people don't understand and is extremely important for healthy living, healthy physical and psychological living. So the definitions, according to the research, is boundaries are a, a psychological demarcation that protects the integrity of an individual or group or that helps the person or group set realistic limits on participation in a relationship or activity. Now, the types of boundaries, according to the research, are their mental boundaries, physical boundaries, emotional boundaries, spiritual boundaries, material boundaries, etc. And the last piece about boundaries from the research is that boundaries are learned. If yours weren't valued, if your boundaries weren't valued as a child, you didn't learn that you had them. 
any type of abuse violates personal boundaries, including teasing. So this is an extremely important aspect of living a healthy life because you want to protect your integrity. You want your feelings and needs and wishes to be honored. And there are so many ways that people who lack boundaries, you know, cause problems. So it's really important that you have boundaries and you know what your boundaries are and that people in your life have boundaries. Now, the next term is called codependent, and I included that because frequently people who are codependent have issues having boundaries. So here's what the research says about codependency or codependent, being codependent. Codependent can be an adjective describing behavior or it can be a noun referring to a person. In the, in the instance where it's a noun, it's a person with an excessive emotional or psychological reliance on a partner, typically one who requires support because of an illness or an addiction. So it's hard for codependents to set boundaries, according to the research, because of five things. Number one, they put others' needs and feelings first. Number two, they do not know themselves. Number three, they don't feel like they have any rights. Four, they believe setting boundaries jeopardizes the relationship. And number five, they have never learned to have healthy boundaries. So boundaries are really one of those things that when they're missing, you know, things are kind of messed up. And if you have a codependency situation, they're probably lacking. Next term is called scapegoat or scapegoating. And according to the, I'm just going to give you some research pieces and then maybe make a comment. So Dr. Graham Wilson points out that what scapegoating or scapegoat is, is that it's a psychodynamically um, speaking is defined as a process by which the mechanisms of projection or displacement, ding, 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 we already covered those two, are used to focus unwarranted levels of aggression, hostility, frustration, etc., on another individual or group. Aggression, hostility, and frustration are behaviors, as is the act itself of scapegoating. What underlines the scapegoating is emotional energy, and it is pain of experiencing this energy within that leads an individual or group to displace it unconsciously. Remember, there we have the unconscious mind. This is why scapegoating is seen as a defense mechanism, i.e. a coping strategy. It is possible for the scapegoat to be done by an individual or a whole group. Now, I have an upcoming podcast about dysfunctional families, and I think that, in my humble opinion, as a layperson, that scapegoating is a probably very either very common or, or reasonably common in dysfunctional families where, you know, emotional intelligence is not high and the uh, pain of the family or pain or anger or whatnot, different emotions can be projected onto one of the persons in the family or one or more people in the family. So I think that given the high level of dysfunctional families, at least in the United States, the scapegoating is probably fairly common. The next concept is called double bind. And according to the research, a double bind is a situation in which an individual, an individual receives contradictory messages from another person. For example, a parent may respond negatively when his or her child approaches 
or attempts to engage in affectionate behavior. But then when the child turns away or tries to leave, the parent reaches out to encourage the child to return. Double binding communication was once considered a causative factor in schizophrenia, first proposed by British anthropologist Gregory Bateson. Uh, according to Gregory Bateson, a double bind is a communication dilemma that comes from a conflict between two or more messages. So it doesn't matter what you do because any choice you make will be wrong. This is a situation in which communication only causes suffering and can lead to psychological disorders. And I am fairly clear, although I don't know the, the pervasiveness, but I'm clear that double bind situations are definitely found in some dysfunctional families. And it's just really bad. It's, really, it's a really bad thing. Dysfunctional families is the next term. And we don't walk around in life talking about dysfunctional families. So I wanted to give it give it some light. And of course, I'll give it a whole bunch more light in my upcoming podcast. A dysfunctional family, according to the research, is one in which conflict and instability are common. Parents might abuse or neglect their children, and other families are forced, often forced to accommodate and enable negative behavior. In some cases, dys dysfunctional families can be the result of addiction, codependency, dependency or untreated illness. Well, I have a lot more to say about that in the upcoming podcast on dysfunctional families because it can be simply the result of having one or both parents that lack emotional intelligence. So this is a huge topic and we, what we really need to do, which we'll I'll cover in my dysfunctional families and toxic people podcast is to understand the behaviors and the whole setup and the whole nature of dysfunctional families. Because in the U.S., that's about 70 to 96% of American families are falling under the umbrella of dysfunctional families. And we wonder why things are the way they are. Next up from a psychological concept you should know is what's called empowering attitudes and beliefs and the opposite, which is disempowering attitudes or beliefs. So beliefs or attitudes that forward your life empower or inspire or uplift you in a positive way are empowering attitudes and beliefs. And likewise, disempowering attitudes and beliefs are the ones that are self-limiting, negative, or do not empower you. I have two YouTube videos on my YouTube channel, one about empowering attitudes and beliefs and one about disempowering attitudes and beliefs. And this whole topic falls under your unconscious, your conscious, unconscious, and subconscious mind because many people have disempowering attitudes and beliefs that they don't realize they have. So it's powerful to understand and be able to pause and be reflect, reflect, you know, be introspective and say, hmm, you know, are my attitudes and beliefs about life and people and what have you, are they empowering or are they disempowering? Next up is enmeshment. And I'm only going to briefly touch on this. I don't, I don't know how common this happens, but I think it's important for you to understand enmeshment is a thing. Enmeshment, according to the research, is a description of a relationship between two or more people in which personal boundaries 
are permeable and unclear. So there's that word boundaries again. So I think it's just really helpful. This all, I think all of this stuff is helpful. Uh, it's certainly helpful in making your life easier. All right, next up I have the term irrational thinking. So you, in life, you want to be someone who's rational, reasonable, logical, but there's this thing called irrational thinking. So I'm going to give you examples of irrational thinking from the research. So examples of irrational thinking include catastrophizing, minimization, well, we already covered that, so you know what that is, grandiosity, personalization, magical thinking, leaps in logic. So leaps in logic, by the way, includes jumping to conclusions and assuming that you know what other people are thinking. All or nothing thinking, that would, that equates to black and white thinking or no shades of gray, paranoia, and delusional thinking. Now, everything I just listed off in the irrational thinking is slightly delusional. In other words, it's not rational, it's irrational. And it, so it's mildly delusional. However, there is a serious, more serious level of delusional thinking that is even has less of a basis in reality. So those types of, of thinking are not fully based in reality and are problematic. So here's some takeaways. Well, here's some yeah takeaways from the podcast. So number one, basic psychology knowledge can help you in so many extraordinary ways. It's, it's almost ridiculous. It's extremely powerful. Takeaway number two is that psychology can be used to empower your life and to, you know, make it easier and to be able to, you know, make sense of the world and make sense of other people's behaviors. And so it has so many benefits. And so the bottom line is, Understanding some basic psychology can make your life easier. I'm always a fan of life being easier because I know how hard it is. All right, call to action. It's time to start learning about psychology because it can help you. Grab a friend. Just grab a friend because I'm a big fan of friends and having a partner in crime and all the good stuff. And start learning a little bit about psychology. It's not going to kill you. And lastly, I'm asking you to share this podcast because there are people whose suffering actually comes from the fact that they don't know enough about psychology because they could make sense of things or people's behavior, what's happening to them. So there you have it. Thanks so much. Take care. I'm Lisa Lundy saying thank you for listening to my Love Life podcast, episode number 16, Basic Psychology Terms Everyone Should Know. I hope that you're going to consider how a little bit of psychology knowledge can really help you powerfully in your life. Please feel free to connect with me at my website, www.lisaalundy.com, to enter my giveaway and win some cool prizes, including my new book when the shipment comes in and I want you to have an amazing life. I want you to be happy, well-loved and healthy. Let me know how I can help you. Love you. Take care for now.